Shooting Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now, I imagine most people listening right now are familiar with the Circus Sideshow. Uh, this is basically, it was very popular around the turn of the century up until the 1960s, popularized by P.T. Barnum. And these were basically shows, uh, tents that were on the side of the main tent, the circus or carnival. And they basically housed an assortment of one of three categories, I would imagine. It was either people um, who had abnormalities uh, or deformities uh, Physically, so very, very tall people, conjoined twins, um, you know, very large people, very short people, very small people, these types of things. So people who had these, you know, kind of extraordinary um, things going on with them physically. There were also people who would perform superhuman feats. And sometimes, you know, both of these types of people were the same person. So sometimes a very uh, large person would be doing fire breathing or sword swallowing or uh, jumping on glass or this type of thing. So those were like the, the human performers. And then there was an element, uh, arguably my favorite element, but these were kind of rare and exotic objects from around the world. So like shrunken heads, mummified remains. Uh, they had taxidermied, the, the taxidermied creatures are very popular, two-headed calves, albino snakes, these types of things. Uh, so these were incredibly popular. So what people would do is they would, you know, put 10 of them in a tent and you would pay a nickel back when a nickel was worth about $387 American. And you would see a bunch of different acts kind of do it fast food style. Uh, that was the American version. And, you know, extraordinarily sensational, very popular. And they kind of, as the civil rights movement hit and people started making the argument that they were that the workers and the people who were in these shows were being mistreated, there's actually two sides of that argument. Some people think that, well, some of these people can't find regular jobs and this is their only source of income and now you're taking that away from them. Other people say it's demeaning, degrading. Uh, we can't have that. Nonetheless, whatever side of that argument you're on, the, the facts of the case are that in right around the 60s, these, these started to go away. They fell out of favor, fell out of fashion. So it is there. Uh, that is a quick two-minute summary of Sideshow in America. I'm sure I missed some details, um, but I got the main points. Because what you need to know is a man named N.P. Luchik was one of these such purveyors. And he is the grandfather of Scott McClelland, the guest for today on the show. And at 11 years old, Scott McClelland learned the Sideshow business from his grandfather and using all of that knowledge, he put together uh, one of the most amazing uh, performances and definitely the, great, the largest and greatest sideshow in North America, Carnival Diablo up in Ottawa, Canada. And this is not like none other. This is uh, like a theater. It's an experience. You know, you go and you, 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 in, you enjoy this thing. It's a, it's a long performance that gives you the, you know, the entire spectrum of all these things. It's just an incredible, incredible stuff. So uh, we're going to talk about the history of Sideshow, how his grandfather was involved. Uh, I'm really excited about this because this has always been one of those topics in that has fascinated me. Scott, thank you so much for being on the show today. Now, we got a lot to get into here, man. What you do is so incredible and so unique. Uh, but first of all, we got to get the first questions out of the way, the important stuff first. So do you, do you like, do you go by Scott or do you like it? Do you prefer like an alter ego? Like, have you lived your gimmick? Like, are you Nikolai, Professor Crookshanks, Dr. Rigamordo? Here's the deal. I, I, I've been performing for 41 years. Wow. Yeah. I, I'm this year, I'm going to be 55. And so that being said, this is, this is the crazy thing. That being said, I am sick and tired of being interviewed as a character. Okay. I, like it's kind of like Gene Simmons having to be in that fucking makeup all the time and kiss. They, I'm sure that they were like, huzzah in 1989 or whatever right. the fuck they took off their right. makeup and they got to look right. like normal people. It's like, that's what it feels like, man. Yeah. It's like, I've spent a lot of my life behind makeup right, and right, in right. characters yeah. and I don't want to do it. I just don't want, so that's I'm going to talk like Scott Bond. No, you that's know? great. Some people are way into it. I didn't know if you'd like lived your gimmick and you're like, dude, I am Nikolai now. 
fuck that action. Right. It's it's a it's a job. Right. It, it, it's it's like um uh what the fuck's the guy named Harry Shearer? Is that the guy that does all the voices yeah. on Simpsons? Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he does like twelve voices. He can't live all those characters all all the time. Right. That would be nuts. So it's like um it's like Robert England, mm-hmm. Freddy Krueger. Right. You know, Robert's not going to go interviewed and go, you know, and and start being Freddy Krueger. It's like yeah. I, I, I think that you know, Nikolai Diablo is 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 a, a fun you know a fun character to listen to, but Fauer, Jesus Christ, he's the devil, man. <laughs> I wasn't suggesting any of this. I love here's what I love, man. I love stepping on a minefield. I love getting a guest all riled up right off the bat. That's fun. I like that. No, we won't do. <laughs> we won't do it. I promise. Well, see, I come from, I'm a pro wrestling fan, right? So I'm kind of right in your world. But one of the things that happened. You know who one of my uh, my buddies is? Sin Bodhi, uh, Kizarni from. Of course. Well, he, he, I, I got him into the world of, uh, uh, of, of being Kazarni. He wasn't Kazarni until he actually worked with me as a strongman. Oh, I didn't realize that. So you yeah, got no, him into no. the Nick. Nick was actually the kind of guy that was like just you know uh, a crazy fucking wrestler, you know. Uh, and and then I uh, I went and I uh, we were in a movie together, and, and I sat down with him. and I said, "You'd be a fucking great strongman in my show." And he goes, "Well, what what do you do?" And I'm like, "I'm I'm a circus sideshow owner." And um, I sat him He's down. Like, what said, year is this? I know. So I sat him down and I trained him to do yeah. things like sitting in an electric chair and taking darts in the back and shit like that. And, um, <laughs> you know, he uh, he did it for four years with us. Yeah. And uh, we we toured really successfully together. And then uh, he decided to move out to the States because he's from Canada. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, he moved down to uh, Vegas and uh, started doing his, uh, his his wrestling gig as a um, Kazarni thing, and it worked to his advantage uh, for a while. I haven't se- I haven't seen or talked to him in about five years. Wow! But um, no, that wasn't the person I was going to bring up. My, my 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 old buddy is Bret Hart. No kidding! Oh, yeah, you're a Canadian. It. Oh wow, Bret Hart, man. Oh god, yeah. I love him. Yeah, Bret Bret and I go way back to 1994. Wow. Yeah. Like the height of his career. You know, it's funny. He just was inducted into the Hall of Fame and got attacked Good. by a fan. I mean, it was like the most random event. It was crazy. I read about that. It That's was nuts. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty crazy. So anyways, what I was saying is that like in pro wrestling, one of the things is called living your gimmick. So you got guys like The Undertaker or Ric Flair is a classic example where they were like one guy, but their character is just their personality turned all the way up. And then they start K-Fab. to believe it. Yeah, yeah, sure. but they break it, and then in real life, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm Ric Flair, the wheeling, dealing, you know, jet stealing, kiss stealing, jet flying, you know, that kind of, Yeah. so, anyway, I wasn't sure if you were, you know, making deals with I people. have done interviews as Nikolai Diablo, let's be honest, it's just that, do hour? I, yeah, no, I don't want to. That's crazy. It's, it's, it's like, you're asking me a lot of cool questions, uh, I'm sure, so it's like, why should I stay in one character for that whole time? Yeah, that sounds insane, I would never, I would never ask that of you, Scott, I promise. I would never ask okay. that of you. I would never. Um, but what what I love about, I mean, first of all, you have t- you have several characters. Uh, you've got several yeah. properties. Uh, quite an amazing history. So let's Thank let's you. let's start with the present really quickly, and then we're going to take it back in time. Um, so so let's. How would you describe Carnival Diablo for someone like me who unfortunately uh, has not seen it yet? And I gotta get. I, I will go to Canada. You know, my pro wrestling background made me hate Canada growing up. I will go to the dirty north. I will cross the state line, and I will go to Canada for your show. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. When I was growing up in pro wrestling, they didn't every every good wrestler was from Canada. And so to make in the eighties and nineties when you know, when the <laughs> foreigner was the bad guy, all they had were Canadians. And so like Canada became like the evil empire. And it's I mean, looking back, it's the most ridiculous thing in pro wrestling. But anyway, yeah, I love Canada. If I'm gonna go up north, I'm <laughs> coming up to see you. Uh, how would you describe it for, you know, an idiot like me who hasn't seen it? Well, Carnival Diablo is uh, it, it's it's kind of the flip flop of what um, American sideshows were from 1920 through 1970. And it, in in America, sideshow was uh, basically a whole run of uh, acts. They were called ten and ones, the, uh, the the big circus sideshows and freak shows. And ten and one meant um, uh, ten people under one big top uh, doing their acts. But the uh, the talker, it wasn't a barker, it was a talker. We called them uh, would be on stage and he go, "Ladies and gentlemen, over here, we've got a sword swallower. He's got." 
about 24 inches of cold, solid steel. Down the hatch without a scratch. And over here we got Big Bertha. She must be made of jello because jam don't jiggle like that. And then over here we've got, and it just went like back-to-back acts like this. Bang, 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 bang. No flavor, just a lot of banter, and uh, which is fun. Uh, admittedly, it's a lot of fun. But you'd see these things, and uh, it, it was it was so quick and in your face that you never got to uh, digest it properly. Now, I come from a real circus sideshow family here in Canada. We're a little more European in thought, and so when I invented Carnival Diablo, my my idea was to uh, actually make sideshow more theatrical. We were the first sideshow in history to uh, wear like full blown makeup. And um, uh, it's a Victorian sideshow. So it takes place 120, 130 years ago. So even our costuming is all Victorian. It's not like 1920s, 1950s, 1980s. It's actually very weird because it's, uh, it's a throwback. And um, I decided when I created the, uh, the acts themselves that they had to have some kind of story. And so uh, there's a lot of comedy involved with it, very situational uh, comedy. But um, the sitcom, basically, situational comedy. You do the sitcom, yeah. Absolutely, and and uh, we would do around 27 things over the course of two hours on stage, and I'd have up to seven performers in the show, and um, they all were like aggrandized figures. They were characters that were really colorful. Um, they were really uh, fleshed out. We had a large fan base because of the fact that um, uh, you could glom on to certain characters. Like you know, there was uh, you know our, our strong man was like just you know fantastic. I was always the instigator of pain. And so my strongman was my foil. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. And, and, and so pain. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I was constantly hurting the guy and the audience felt sorry for him, but loved it at the same time because I'm the devil and I'm an asshole and a fucker. Uh, the, the female in the show that was like the bug eater and, and, and all that, she was uh, actually uh, like this uh, beautiful kind of Victorian woman that looked like she would not do that kind of thing and yet she was like a fucking animal on stage uh when it came to doing uh like bug eating and uh glass eating and uh glass walking holy shit um my my female performers when when they jumped on glass they would get at least three feet between the ground and the uh and and, and their bodies wow that's, like a, that's a good hop yeah, yeah. So when they came down, they were crashing hard and the audiences were cringing because, you know, girls' feet are soft and they're cute and everything. And suddenly they're going into this like massive pile of glass. Wow. And uh, it, it was fun to see because I would build it up in a good way. It right. wasn't fast. It was like it was like first she'd dip her toe into it like it was in a pond and she was seeing if the uh, water was going to be cold or not. Right, right, and then yeah. she'd just go nuts on it. Yeah. And uh, the audience would just get louder and louder and louder. And of course, I'd, you know, I'd jeer them on. I'd, be, I'd, I'd make them feel like they weren't loud enough. And it was like, of course, it's kind of like old wrestling things. It's yeah, like exactly. making the audience like – yeah. Want the blood? It's kind of like being in the uh, fucking uh, the Roman Colosseums. Yeah, gladiators, and, man. Uh, gladiators, exactly. And so I was using it to my advantage that way. But at the same time, I was trying not to be uh, profane because on stage, I think that when you're using the word "fuck" every three sentences, um, it, it it stops being a really strong word. So I swore twice in my show only, and both times were swearing at a very important and and. And, and uh, exciting moment right. where the whole audience was shocked right. that Nikolai Diablo was actually saying what he was saying, but it was just perfect. Um, <laughs> when it was narratively appropriate, I guess would be. That's right. right. That's right. Because we 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 were Victorian people, right. and be, uh, be, being a Victorian gentleman on stage, it was shocking. Yeah. Uh, but in a silly way, because here we are in the 21st century, the word "fuck" isn't shocking at all. No, you know, twat waffle isn't shocking. No, so it's like. All. No. <laughs> Giggle like a little girl. <laughs> never heard that one before. That's a funny one. So, I mean, I, yeah, you're right. But, I mean, like, the evolution of what you do is pretty incredible because, you know, I, I think in one of your interviews you described it as, like, a, you know, it's like a Disneyland experience. Because essentially what you're doing is you've created 
you know, it's a show. It's not like a sideshow where you walk through and it's, you know, you got to get, it's not fast food. It's like you're sitting down, you're watching a performance for two hours. Right. And I think you called it in one, like uh, the a horror version of a Disneyland experience, uh, yeah. which is, it's pretty, pretty intense um, when you think about it. How did, how were you able to take some of these acts, which, which in some ways can be very quick? Um, what is your mindset, you know, like, especially what you did with, with the, the glass walking, you know, you take something that could be a five second thing and turn it into like a 10 minute show. How do you yeah. decide what gets that kind of treatment and, um, and, and how do you go about like structuring the act itself? That's a good question. I, you know, it's funny. A lot of sideshows when they were uh, doing things like um, setting off an animal leg hold trap on their on their hand, um, that that act lasts like one second. Right. Your hand goes to the trap; it snaps. Right. I've turned it into a five minute comedy act, <laughs> where I teach the audience how to play act. a trick on your friend. Right. And uh, my foil, of course, is my strongman, who I bring out right. on stage, and he has no idea what I'm about to do, supposedly. Yeah. Right. Because I hide the trap by placing a $5 bill on top of it. Got so it. you can't see it. Very Tom and, and Jerry-esque. Uh, oh, it's absolutely absurd. Yeah. And um, when I was doing it with Nick, it's like, uh, be, be, because he's so physical already, uh, Nick uh, Sin Kazarni, as as Sin some Bodhi. people might know him, yeah. Sin Bodhi, uh, uh, I, I employed him for four years uh, as, as my strongman. When I was using Nick in the show, uh, he would get so outrageously on the ground, like when that thing snapped on his hand, he was on his knees, like he was like crying like a baby. <laughs> right. and, then he, and then he'd get up. And it looked like he was going to tear me apart. Now, Nick's a wall of muscle. So it's like the whole audience was like, holy shit, this is going to be a bad thing now because he's really angry at Nikolai Diablo. But Nikolai Diablo is really in charge of everything. So it's like I, I offer him the $5 bill. Uh, <laughs> but I, I make it up to him. I say, look, you know what? I'm. I am going to make this. I feel bad. I feel real bad for hurting you. Mm -hmm. And so the whole audience is like, oh, good. It's like he's going to give him something good, like maybe a $100 bill now. And the Grinch has a heart, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. And so it's like I go, here, have a can of dog food. <laughs> and I give him a can opener of the dog food, and he walks off stage, and he eats it, the motherfucker. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Done and done. What's, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I love that idea. Now, does, does the kind of – you know, obviously, we're going to get to your grandfather in a second, who taught you all the tricks yeah. of the trade. Um, but does that kind of does that ability kind of come from being a performer yourself and kind of learning to come from you know learning how to perform? Um, that that how you structure everything? It, it's it's funny. Um, the uh, the format of comedy called um, uh, improvisational comedy. Mm -hmm. And you're used to seeing it, uh, like on uh, whose line is it anyway, and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, was invented by a guy named Keith Johnson, and Keith Johnson is out of Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Wow. Now, Jim Carrey and John Candy and all these other people actually were tutored under, uh, you know, uh, Keith Johnston, who invented this hmm. uh, this format. Right. Well, it just happens in the uh, 1980s. So was I. Oh, so wow. it's like I. Yeah, so I actually went uh, and uh, and and learned from the master himself. That so it's the improvisational background you think that kind of gives you the ability. But I mean, that's more of like kind of playing ah, in the but, moment on stage, right? No, you see, the thing is, is like um, uh, Robin Williams said this. Uh, uh, when it comes to improv, uh, in his world, when he was alive, um, he he says we've basically come up with every kind of comedy bit known to mankind in our head. And we're pulling it out as quickly as we can to uh, make it look like it's uh, instantaneous when actually mm. it's it's already something that we've uh, been working on for a while. Mm. And so uh, one one thing I have to get off my chest right now, the, okay. the idea of improv in my show is impossible. Okay. We don't improv anything. My show is scripted right down to the wink. And um, so the comedy is situational comedy, but it's also been really strongly written and directed. Okay. Um I, I'm saying that my ideas of how I got these acts together right. was through my improv comedy where we would play with the idea. We'd sit down, like when we were rehearsing me and Nick or anybody else that was working with me, we'd sit down, go through the act and I'd say, carte blanche, just do whatever the fuck you want while we're at home here. Right. And, uh, I'll, uh, I'll see if any of these bits work. So if you think you're, you, you're going to add to the act 
add to it right now because you never know it might be funny enough to use on stage. So that's what I meant. I would never use like uh, improv. I hate going to a sideshow or any any live show where a person is improving on stage and you can tell they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Right. It drives me crazy. Well, that's bad improv though. If they improv and you don't know that they that they're improving, that's the that's gold. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, that's that's gold, but you know what? A lot of people it doesn't happen don't, very often. Yeah, it doesn't happen <laughs> no. often. Trust me, being in LA, I've been dragged to a million improv shows and the I'm worst so thing to sit through is a bad improv show. I mean, it is miserable. I know, um, but I've been to a good one, and it's the best thing in the world. But and anyway, so so you're so scripted down, and that makes sense. So you workshop it privately and use improv right. to workshop it. Once it's perfect, then you put it in the show. That's great. that's right, and uh, not until then. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so so this you kind of got. Let's let's talk about your grandfather for a second because I love your history here, and you're a third Thank generation you. performer. Uh, I mean, it's it's really cool. Uh, I mean, just to, I mean, that's just an amazing, an amazing feat. And so, so it was uh, N.P. Luchik, right? Luchuk. Yeah, Nicholas Paul Luchuk. Nicholas Paul. I like the, I like the, the initials. I always love N.P. Like, uh, like H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, so he kind of he started a sideshow in 1920. Now let me ask you, let me ask you a question here. So he wasn't that kind of after the age of the sideshow? I mean, it's kind of amazing that he had it. So am I wrong? Oh, you're wrong. I thought no. sideshow ended in America like in the 20s and 30s. No. no, Sideshow was actually like still uh, pretty strong in the 50s. No kidding. I don't think I realized yeah. that. Okay. Yeah, it, it wasn't until the uh, late 60s that um, the tide began to turn and people started going, oh, you know, pu- uh, you know, public acceptance of like showing freaks or this kind of thing is wrong, right. blah, 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 blah. That late? Before that, though. Yeah, right. that late. Oh, wow. trust me. Yeah, I don't know. In America and in Europe and in Canada. But like in in reality, no, no, no. Uh, From 1920 through 1950, it was strong. And Grandpa was, uh, you know, he was not doing the sideshow on a huge scale in the 60s. Like they they were doing from 1920 through 1945, 1950, vaudeville and sideshow. So there was like, you know, you know what vaudeville is, eh? Of course. I'll explain yeah. it to the uh, yeah, yeah, list to the public audience. for those that don't. Uh, vaudeville is basically like watching TV. It's 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 where you're getting your uh, melodrama, your song, your dance, your ventriloquism, your magic, you know, uh, variety acts. But they're back to back, fast paced, great, um, great performers, like great performers. And and this was what people would go out to the theater to see. Uh, Joe Public. Not, you know, not high end theater. And so it was like this was the perfect thing for everybody. It was the everybody kind of show. You know, uh, people could stay for three or four hours and watch vaudeville in a theater because the vaudeville acts were rotating constantly. And uh, my grandfather had produced a two and a half hour show and it only cost 25 cents to enter the tent. And um, (laughs) yeah. And uh, like my grandmother could swallow seven swords at one time. She's in the Sword Swaller Hall of Fame. That's incredible. That, that that's an. I want to just pause you right there because that's amazing. I, I checked out that story. She is in fact in the Sword Swaller Hall of Fame. Uh, Anastasia uh, Luchuk. That's right. How do you how do you fit seven swords into your? Are they smaller? So how does that? No, you don't have to reveal the curtain too much. But I mean, how does no, no, no. They weren't foils. Foils are those little tiny thin swords that people use for jousting. Yeah. No, these were real swords. And uh, fencing swords, what you're saying? These are real. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Fencing. I'm sorry, jousting. Jesus. I was like, you don't joust with a. That'd be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Oh, poor grandma. Okay, no, 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 no. It was nothing like that. But it was, yeah, it, it was. It was fencing, and uh, but she did. She never used fencing swords. She used like uh, not broadswords, but the real thing. And uh, she would make a sword sandwich. She'd put them all together, and um, they would go down the gullet, uh, right to the pit of her stomach. There is no magic act for this. It takes up to seven years for a sword swallower to get past that gag reflex to actually get to that point where they are really doing that without gagging. Um, you know, some people do it in, in less time, but it really is an art form and uh, nothing but props and respect for anybody that can swallow a sword professionally. Do it well. I've seen a lot of crap performers that are gagging on them, but that's what everybody would do. Everybody would gag on a sword if they put it in their throat. Yeah, no kidding. So, so, so just to understand this. So she would t- like she held them together and then put that's them right. Down? She held them and put oh, them down. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I've, I have a picture of my grandmother with all of her swords, and it's nuts. It's a crazy, it's a crazy picture. Wow. It, they, they, it just doesn't look possible. Yeah, yeah. 
Doesn't sound possible. I mean, because I'm even trying to think of like how thick that would be versus the size of your esophagus. Uh, and this stuff is, I mean, this stuff is meant to bend your brain when you hear it. That's it's right. Like, yeah, I mean, that's the whole yeah. design. If it didn't bend my brain, then what would I be watching it for, right? That's right. Uh, anyway, all right. So, so um, we're in the 1920s. But didn't he, and, and didn't your grandpa? He started out like just selling. I think he had, if I remember this correctly, he had a two-headed stuffed calf, and he sold that's right. potato chips. And I think he had a wax figure of John Wilkes Booth. Am I right? That is correct. That was the first. But that's how he started making his money. Um, and, and it was popular. In the first year of just showing those those three things under a uh, block 10 foot by 10 foot canvas tent, he made enough money to build his first ride. And so every year his 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 carnival got bigger and bigger thanks to the help of his freak show. Wow. And uh, and then of course uh, in the, like 1923 um, he started involving the freak show with the sideshow, which means there was performances, not just freaks on show. And um, he had performers that were uh, freaks, like he had Johnny the Midget um, and uh, Anna Anna Prestruck. Um, they were both very tiny people, like we're we're talking minuscule, like the size of uh, Mini Me. Like really tiny people, two foot nine, three feet at the most, just really tiny. And we have a picture of Anna Pastruk on um, on a chair and she's standing on the chair and she looks like a doll standing wow. on a chair. It doesn't even it doesn't even make sense, but it's right. it's real. Um, but they had to have talent. You see, my grandfather wouldn't employ uh, uh, people that had anomalous problems with their body uh, just to be gawked at. He was he was not that kind of showman. And so everybody in the show had to have a talent. Uh, Johnny the Midget could tap dance and played the horn. Uh, Anna Pastruk could sing. So it's like that. That was really the important thing uh, with my grandfather's show was making everybody a star, and uh, to be called a freak is not a bad thing in the carnival world because a lot of the people that were working in the freak show, the fat ladies, tall men, uh, you know, uh, th- that kind of thing, they were making more money than lawyers of that day. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. Like I know P.T. Barnum was making that kind of money, but I mean you're talking no, about no, the performers see, themselves. They're, they're selling like you know their their pitch cards, and sometimes like the Giants would be selling these great big fucking rings that they'd have on their fingers, uh, that, that were like <laughs> almost the size of bracelets to a normal human being, and uh, you know people would buy them. Uh, it's like early merch, then essentially. That's exactly swag, 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 <laughs> and they made a lot of money because the, wow. uh, the the smart owners of the carnival would let them keep the take. So everything that they made on their uh, on their swag was theirs. Yeah. So it wasn't like they were making the big money on the gate. Right. It was what they were making afterwards. Just like because, today. I mean, it hasn't changed much. That's right. Wow. That is yeah. so bizarre. So now, what, how did people come up with their merch? This is fascinating. So, I mean, how did the people – I mean, it wasn't like today where you've got like a promotions team doing it. Like how did they come up with like what they do? Well, um, it, sometimes it was just uh, uh, photographs. Like my grandfather was a pioneer for, uh, photographer. Like he actually uh, pioneered a lot of the things that they do in uh, trick photography and all that uh, mm, really? and everything. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, he had um, some wonderful pictures of like grasshoppers mowing the lawn and things like that. Like he was he was coming up with crazy ideas. Do you he still has a have picture. These? Yeah. Oh, you got to yeah. send them to me. I got to put these up. Oh, it's nuts. Um, he, he had pictures of um, himself uh, uh, playing poker with himself at a table. He has another picture where he was beheading himself. So there was two, two different versions of himself in the same picture. Yeah. And, and one was chopping his, his own head off and the other one was on the chopping block. It's like <laughs> these are crazy things, but this is what grandpa did. Right. Wow. That's and so amazing. it's like he would actually uh, make the pictures – for the performers. And I have some of the pitch cards that grandpa wow. used in his show. And, uh, you know, they'd sell for five cents. But, you know, that adds up when you've got like, you know, five to eight hundred people through in a day. Right. And you got to remember that the uh, the buck went a lot further back then. Right. And so they were doing they were doing OK, yeah. really. You could you could retire on like 10 bucks or something like that back then. 10, <laughs> 20 bucks. You just said. I, I'm trying to. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's I don't think I realized that. That's amazing. Um and so he so he grew this thing and I think if if I'm understanding the history correctly, the biggest acquisition um and this came pretty early on, I imagine, uh was him him purchasing the let's see if I get the name right. It's the Shinga the Shingwells Museum in Peoria, is that right? 
That's right. Is. Is it, am I saying that? I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Shangles. Shangles. Yeah, that was pretty close. Yeah. The Shangles Museum, which was essentially a ton of artifacts, right? I mean, like that's right. That that's incredible. Now that adds like an entirely new dimension to what he was doing. So how did that evolve? What he was doing with the sideshow? Well, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, sideshows in the past always had their freaks and anomalies. Whether it was like you know stuffed calves with two heads and all that kind of thing. Under a tent. Grandpa found that that was a really uh, hard way to move things because uh, stuff would get wrecked after a while, mostly if it was taxidermy. They'd start to fall apart from being manhandled too much on the road. So my grandfather invented this idea, and this is the beautiful thing about who he was. He changed the way people look at carnivals. Um, He he invented the very first walkthrough museum in a trailer. And he took all of his freaks, not the performers, but the uh, taxidermied things and wax things, and he put them inside of this trailer. And so you walked, uh, you know, in a straight line down the trailer looking to your left, and um, you would see uh, amazing, like 120 artifacts from all over the world. And, of course, these were coming from that museum that he had purchased. I now own that museum. So it's like now I have that here at my place. Wow, that's incredible! And hopefully, uh, so I want to get to some other stuff. But you're going to stick around and talk to me about some of your the crazy stuff you have in there. So um, yes. I'm excited to get into that. Uh, but let, let's we got to get to you. We got to get back to you, right? That's where the story ends. Yeah. Uh, so you're, you're so your your mom obviously your mom is your grandfather's daughter, right? I think everyone can yeah, can right. figure that part. Out. <laughs> yeah. So she I think that it's a, you know the dad side of the family. It's no, it's my mom's side of the family. I'm sorry for interrupting, but no, it's no, true. No. It's, it's I mean, and and that's what's so. If I understand this correctly, so she was the youngest of nine kids who all worked at the carnival. That is uh, correct. When she was 18, she ran away from the circus. Uh, that's got is that a black mark on the family? Like you guys talk, Not, you like, no. like to talk about that. No shit. It, it's it's like she was basically born in a caravan on the road, right. and so it's like ultimately uh, for my mom, it was uh, a, a life on the road constantly. Uh, you know, in the spring, summer, and fall, and uh, you know she uh, she was really good at what she did. Like you know, she trains you know the monkeys, the lions, the bears, that kind of thing. But um, at the age of 18, yeah, she just ran away from the circus because she wanted to uh, settle down in a uh, brick-and-mortar house that didn't have great big old, uh, you know, wagon wheels. <laughs> right. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, so she does that. Um, so then, you know, I'm not going to go into the details, but then you come along. And at 11 years old, if I'm correct, right, 11 years old, you get a letter from your grandfather or urging yeah. you to come back to the circus saying, we've got to bring the family back to the circus. I don't know. I'm just making that part up. Um, but there was one condition, right? So, so tell, tell me how this worked from, from letter to you being a star. Yeah. <laughs> my my grandfather, uh, wrote me a letter when I was 11 that said, dear Scott, every time you come to the carnival, you always have a crowd around you because you're such a ham. Have you ever thought of becoming a performer? And like, I'm a fucking 11 year old kid. Of course, every kid wants to be a yeah, performer, yeah. you know, look at me, yeah. I'm a kid. That or an know? athlete, and, one of the two, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, um, he says, but there's a caveat to this. Um, if you want to become a showman like myself, you have to learn the oldest piece of magic known to mankind. And it's called the cups and balls. Now, the Cups and Balls uh, has been performed uh, during the Ming Dynasty. It was performed in Egypt during the times of the pharaohs. Uh, it, it's it, it, Collectively, around the world, every single country was doing a version of the Cups and Balls. Like in Egypt, they were using uh, clay cups and little rocks under the, uh, uh, under the cups. In China, they were using teacups and little woven balls. In Europe, they were using spun steel cups and cork balls. And they would uh, appear, disappear, you know, change into uh, apples, oranges, and eggs and that kind of thing. And uh, it was fascinating. But the thing is, is my grandfather said, you have to learn how to perform the oldest piece of magic known to mankind. And then you must perform it for me. Now, if you fool my eye and... I actually believe what you're doing looks real. Then you become a showman. But if you don't, you'll never work in this industry. So he gave me six (laughs) months. No pressure for an (laughs) 11-year-old. No. And so he gave me six months to learn how to perform the cups and balls. And um, at that six-month point, I I was sat down at his kitchen table, and he says, all right, perform for me. And um, I did my little cup and ball act. 
And when he was done, he sat silently for a good 30 seconds, which felt like 30 years. And then he looked at me, put out his hand and said, congratulations, you're now a showman. And he started at that point to apprentice me. So from the age of 11 to the age of 25, I apprenticed under my grandfather. And um, he passed away when I was 25. So I actually uh, was lucky enough to be an adult for the last few years of my apprenticeship with him. Wow, that's incredible. And so apprenticing is is an interesting thing because a lot of people have this idea that it's just about learning uh, the acts that he did. It's not. It's like uh, I would spend two months every summer with him. And uh, so you still went to school, right? Like you weren't like taken out of school oh, and like sure. put on the road. Okay. Uh, there were times where I was uh, um, uh, touring during school time and the teachers would allow it because, uh, they knew our family history. Um, I actually, a, a little side note, it's kind of weird, but, um, in uh, grade 10, when I got into it, my teachers said, because of the fact that you have already a vocation, something that you know, you're going to be doing for the rest of your life, we're going to put you in this thing called math 15 and math 15 just teaches you basically how to do your taxes and nothing else. <laughs> and so you'll never have to take math again. Right. <laughs> and so everybody else had to go into grade 11 and 12 and all that and take math. I stopped after grade 10 because they knew that all I was going to do was be a showman and a performer. <laughs> you weren't going to like solve big physics equations. That's uh, right. Just do taxes. Can you still balance a checkbook? Yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> it, <laughs> Some people don't. I still, I balance well, mine. I look like a maybe dinosaur. I, maybe on my nose. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well, so, so that's that's incredible. So you so you you were apprenticing. You so you were doing all this. You you were really absorbing all the secrets. Really, I mean, like anyone, you can teach anyone that's about right. the you know how to do the acts. But it's really how to, yeah. But how to how to make a successful show, um, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, it, that was more of like he was allowing me to be around him while he worked. Right. And so apprenticeship in in the old terms was you were watching the master do his thing and you were gleaning everything you could from what he was doing. That's what I was doing. I was watching my grandfather work. Um, he, he knew that when I came to his carnival, like the rest of the grandkids were like interested in eating the candy floss and going on the rides. Right. <laughs> my interest was why do people want to eat the candy floss and how do the rides work? Like what makes, what makes them so exciting to the public? So I actually had the, um, the brain of a carnival showman right from the top and, um, grandpa realized that and, uh, uh, basically just let me, uh, be a part of his world. Like he took me under his wing. There was 50 grandkids and none of them, none of them got to see what I saw. None of them got to, uh, experience, uh, the life that my grandfather had. Because he was very private and he didn't, uh, he didn't really talk to the other kids because they only seemed to show interest when he was turning the rides on or giving them candy floss or candy apples. And it's this to my, uh, my cousins or anything. Right. It's yeah. just, I mean, did he still love them? I guess is what I'm saying. Is oh, he? sure. Sure. Yeah. He, <laughs> he loved them from afar. Right. Of course. Uh, at a distance. At a safe you know, distance. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that, I mean, that is a truly incredible piece of, I mean, you can't put a, you know, you can't put any kind of value on that experience because there, you can't do it today. I mean, there's, there's, you, you couldn't repeat what you're doing unless are you, do you have an apprentice? Do you have anyone who's, uh, or is it all going to die with you? Uh, no, I, you know, it's a sad story. Um, last year I got a, uh, an email from a person that wanted to apprentice. And so I was like, you know what? I have trained in the past 27 years, 52 performers training and, Apprenticing are two different things. And so I said, you know, I'd, I'd be more than happy to apprentice you because that means I'm going to be able to teach this person how to uh, produce a show, how to write a show, how to uh, perform the acts, but also uh, what makes uh, a show work with light and sound and things like that. Um, so this person uh, basically drove across the country to apprentice under me last year. And in under two weeks, she quit. And she quit because she uh, said, "This is an apprenticeship. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm. Uh, you got me doing everything here." And I'm going, "Yeah, we're doing everything. We're not just talking about like learning feats." Well, she goes, "I only came here to learn the feats." Mm. And I'm like, "Well, if that's the case, that's training. Mm-hmm. And if you came here to be trained, 
I'm afraid that I'm not interested because I've already trained 52 people in my life and I'm not right. wanting to train anymore. Right. So uh, it kind of turned me off from wanting to apprentice because I don't think that um, a lot of people know what apprenticeship means anymore. Like they might think union-wise apprentice, which means, oh, I'm going to learn a trade and it's going to be just, you know, straightforward. But there's nothing straightforward about a proper apprenticeship. We're, we're, we're teaching you an art form. And to learn that art form, it's a, it's a, it's a serious biz. Like it's, it's not about just the mechanics of a feat performing a, a sideshow act. It's about everything that goes into making a show happen. And uh, as Walt Disney said, every detail is important. It's true. And um, I was so willing. I, like I, I had it all set out in my head how I was going to train this person and, and give them my knowledge because it would be nice to have a progeny running around with the uh, amount of knowledge that I got from my grandfather. But it was blown out of the water after two weeks because, you know, it was hard work setting up the circus tent and having to slug the props out and all this kind of thing. This, this, this is part of the job. This is what we do. It's a, it, it's a business. It's a job. It's not like, you know, oh, we're just on stage and everybody's like clapping and cheering. No, that's not what it's all about. Yeah. You know, you know what you should have done? You should have taken this person and you should have sat them down to watch the original Karate Kid because there's this great moment where Daniel LaRusso is standing up and, and he's like, I'm learning to be your slave is what I'm doing. And he's like, no. And then, he, you know, Mr. Miyagi turns him around and all of a sudden he knows all the blocks from doing all the hard work of painting the fence, waxing the car, you know, you know, sanding the floor, all that stuff. And it's like, that's what was happening is he was being an apprentice, but he had to do all the hard work. That's, that's what it is. And you don't know that's you're funny. learning. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, I know a lot. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and this person completely, it was lost on her. Uh, and, and it made me really sad because um, what I had to offer was huge. And it, it was such, because I, there are not, uh, right now, there's maybe two families in the world that are alive that still have sideshow workers in them. And I don't even know who they are because I don't know. I don't many, I don't know many, like in all reality, all the sideshow people out there th these days have either, um, uh, read about it in books, learned it from the internet, or they have, um, apprenticed through other performers that were not family. I, on the other hand, am coming straight from the, uh, like, you know, right from the family, uh, unit. My grandfather did it. My grandmother did it. My uncles and aunts were all part of the show. So ultimately, uh, it, the knowledge that I have is so much stronger because um, it's almost innate. It's, it, these are the things that our family did. Right. You know, this, is, this is how we live. My grandfather raised nine kids during the Second World War when everybody else was you know, starving and having a hell of a time with things. And the depression and the depression, hear me on yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah. And, they, and they were still fine because he had the wits about him to uh, run a really good show. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, the, some people say show business is recession proof. I mean, it's, you know, people always want to go it's and be true. entertained, you know, I mean, it is Most really true. You're feeling down. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, you know, that is, a, that is an incredibly sad story. I do hope that it, that what you do carries on because wow. I mean, it's, you know, Damn, I mean, so yeah, I mean, you could write it down, you could, but it's not, you know, like you said, it's not the same, not it's not the same. straight from the tap, you know, it's uh, no. distilled water, not from the, the glaciers. But let's talk about the first thing you did, because if I'm understanding your history, you the first thing you kind of developed on your own was Professor Crookshank's traveling uh, medicine circuit or medicine show, show. medicine show, yeah. um, which is pretty cool. Now, if if I I'm looking at how it looks now, but is this kind of the first moment where you kind of put your own horror themed Victorian spin on a sideshow? Well, no. Uh, actually, Professor Crookshank's Traveling Medicine Show was my very first production. I started working on it in 1977, and uh, I was touring it across the country in 1979. So in 79, I was um, uh, I was 15, and uh, so I was I was touring across the country. My parents would put like in my pocket a little note that would say, "My name is Scott McClelland, and uh, I have to be at this hotel at this time, and this is the uh, person that I have to meet, so I can do my show." And so it's like basically, I would be. Uh, set out on my own and I would go and do the Calgary Stampede, Edmonton's Klondike Days, Regina's Buffalo Days and tour across the country doing this old time medicine show. And uh, the show was a comedy show. It was, it, it was filled with comedy. It was filled with magic. It was filled with uh, fun things. Now, all I'll stop you for a second really quickly here because you, now this show was done 
you know, almost eight years after your grandfather had stopped touring with the sideshow. So this is not a part of his thing. This is your own thing that you started touring. Work. Right. Okay. That's right. Okay. So sorry. Continue. Oh, no, please. Uh, so ultimately, uh, this this was my first big production. I started making some good money on that when I was a kid. And um, my, my leanings to horror didn't happen uh, until 1981. And in 1981, a wonderful gentleman, Charles Poirier, uh, who is a special effects artist now out of Hollywood, uh, but he lived in Calgary, Alberta at the time. He was a, he was Canadian. Um, uh, Charles uh, contacted me because he knew my uh, my love and need to create and uh, sculpt because I'm also a sculptor and a painter, and he uh, he was also a, a burgeoning magician at the time outside of like working on his career as a uh, special effects makeup artist. And uh, he knew of my show. So he said, Scott, I'm putting together a thing called the Kane Manor, which is a uh, large haunted mansion. And um, I'd like you to, uh, you know, work as this main character, which is the butler that takes everybody through the place. And it's a scripted fun idea. So it's like, I was like, wow, this is awesome. So I, um, I started researching and, uh, looking at people like Boris Karloff and Vincent Price. And I was jonesing on all these old 1930s, forties and fifties, like hammer horror films. Right. Even and, Lurch, uh, I imagine. Right. No, 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 no. Lurch is the great big uh, butler on. Yeah, but he was like a butler. He's a, a scary butler. I don't know. Maybe you. Uh, yeah. since No. Okay. He's, no. He, he, he's like no looks talent. like Frankie. He's like Frankenstein the butler. So what? But he's like he, he's no talent. It's <laughs> like you know. It's, sure, Carol Strickland. That was the guy's name. He was great. Yeah. But it was like he did nothing. It was like. Yeah. Well, you know oh, who cares? Yeah. Fair you enough. Know? I was more interested in Grandpa Munster and Herman Munster and the Munsters because they were showing me, like, you know, another way well, of performing. You Boris Karloff. Karloff. Boris Karloff as Frankenstein did basically, you know. Yeah, but he, he did a ton of different characters in different horror movies. That is true. That is true. Yeah. Okay. All right. Your story checks out. All right. So these guys inspired you. Not Lurch, but everyone, every other major horror Lurch, butler. Everybody else did. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, so in 81, we did that. And uh, – Charles said in 83, Scott, I've decided to open the world's largest haunted mansion, and it's called the Black Castle. Um, I'm working on Superman, the first movie with Christopher Reeves at the time. Uh, he was uh, Christopher Reeves' uh, primary makeup artist, and he goes, I won't be able to do the special effects or anything, so I want to bring you in to actually create all of the horror that goes into the Black Castle. And I will teach you how to do mold making and um, create full body corpses and things like that out of things that you wouldn't even consider uh, using normally. And sure enough, uh, it was pretty intensive. He spent about three weeks with me and taught me all these different things. And then I used them to my advantage in creating all the uh, creepy monster things that went into the Black Castle. And uh, it was so successful that in 1985 it was reopened again. And I was asked once again to uh, uh, basically – build the uh the horror that went into the place and create a character and the character's name was uh roscoe p rigor mortis the <laughs> third now it, this was the keeper of the castle right and he was the very beginning of the real horror that i uh that i was wanting to delve into and so between 81 and 85 i was working on this new type of character and um i wasn't doing sideshow at this time like sideshow didn't i didn't bring that into my life until 1992 so it's like before that i was playing tons of characters like i was i was uh you know doing charlie chaplin I was doing the Joker. I was doing all these different characters at large events, like um, hockey, uh, hockey games and basketball games and football games and all that. And um, I was making money as a, uh, a variety performer. Uh, but then in 1992, uh, things changed. Like in 1989, my grandfather passed away. And uh, when he passed away, uh, you know, that was a very hard thing because, like, he was my mentor. He was, like, a very important man in my life. Uh, basically, uh, I procured most of his estate. And so uh, in 92, um, 
now this is this is this is a weird story, but this is how it played out. Right. Uh, uh, a person was crossing the street in Calgary, Alberta. Very eccentric. He was wearing lederhosen, and uh, he looked like he was from the Swiss Alps. Now, this is one of the most eccentric people in, in Calgary at the time. Right. His name was Fred Hollis. Yeah. And um, I had never spoken to Fred before, and I was like standing on the other side of the street ready to cross uh, the crosswalk. Yeah. And we, we met in the middle of the road, and I said, Fred, we've never talked before. I think we should meet for a coffee. And so we went out and we had a coffee and I, he says, well, what do you do? And I said, well, um, you know, I do an old time medicine show and, um, I have a whole bunch of freaks now that my grandfather's passed away that I'm trying to figure out what to do with. And he goes, well, listen, I have an idea. I have a uh, friend that's just opened up an art gallery here in town and he has this huge building he doesn't know what to do with. And I said, okay. So I went with him and, uh, he introduced me to the guy and his name was Mano Klassen and, um, he, uh, I, I said, well, do you mind if I, um, rehearse here in your back, uh, part of the building, the old time medicine show, so I can, you know, kind of keep the, sh- the show slick. And he goes, sure. So here I am rehearsing. This all has a reason, by the way, don't worry, Daniel. No, 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 I'm uh, good. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so I'm in the back rehearsing and I note that there is a wooden stairwell that goes up two stories to a bright red door that has a huge padlock on it. And I go to my, I, I go to Mano and I go Mano, what is up there? Like it, or who, there's or, great, yeah, yeah. There's a great big red door up there with a, a padlock on it, and everything else is gray in this building. Like it's just a gray building. And he goes, oh, um, I've got a key to it, but he goes, I don't think there's much up there. It's probably just uh, carpet remnants and all that because it used to be a carpet factory. Um, so uh, he gave me the key, and we went up the stairs. I put the key in the lock. And right when I opened the door slowly, my whole fucking life changed. There was a block-long building that was empty, completely empty. And suddenly I could see that place filled with freaks. And I turned to Mano and I said, "Um, how much would you charge me to actually take over this part of the building? And at the time, he said 500 bucks a month. And I'm like, you got it. So I sat down and spent two months with a whole bunch of people uh, putting together the very first Carnival Diablo space. Now, Carnival Diablo started as a stationary tourist attraction in Calgary, Alberta. And I filled it with 120 attractions and three shows a night. Now, this was the only sideshow in Canada outside of my grandfather's. My grandfather stopped performing in 68. So from 1968 to 1992, there were no sideshows in Canada. And then in 92, I came along and opened Carnival Diablo. So historically, we are the only sideshow family in this country that actually was doing it big time. That's amazing. I mean, yeah. that's incredible. Out of... Like, you know, a few million people in the country. There's at least a few million. Yeah. We, we are the only people that now that the, there, there are, um, uh, there, there, there is a guy, um, uh, that, uh, is Canadian, but he now lives in the States that runs a, uh, a, a fairly large sideshow also, but there is nobody running big sideshows anymore in Canada. And, uh. So we opened up this thing and it became so popular that, uh, after a year it needed to tour. So I put together a, a seven-person troupe, and we began like this huge, uh, like onslaught to the uh, <laughs> to the world with Carnival Diablo. And in '92, we were doing the show like inside the stationary attraction, and this was the exact same time that Jim Rose started his circus sideshow. So uh, basically, we were working serendipitously at the same time, and we brought sideshow back. Jim Rose and myself. I was going to bring up his name, but I didn't know if he was a competitor, if you're going to hang up on me. Competition is always great. And, and Jim was somebody that, you know, was, was great competition because he was like, uh, he was hungry. I was hungry. And we were both doing sideshow on completely different levels. Um, I remember, uh, the, uh, the first time me and Jim actually, uh, met, I was up in the hotel room of his and, uh, uh, I said, Jim, where do you see yourself in five years? This is 1992, by the way. So this is before he'd been on Sally, Jesse, Raphael, or Danuela Palooza. And he, uh, he said, well, in five years, I'd like to see myself as like a fucking rock star, like, you know, on the road, drinking, drugs, <laughs> women, having a good time. 
and, uh, you know, being famous more than anything. Yeah. And uh, then he turned to me and he goes, so where do you see yourself in five years? And I said, working. <laughs> because you know what? Rock stars come and go. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and fuck, it's like I wanted to create a show that would have some teeth and stay in the industry. Now I'm not no diss to Jim. He really made a big dent in the industry. Like he actually brought backside show on a high level. Like people were really excited about it because of his, his performers and himself. Uh, but, uh, Jim stopped performing like good God, nine, 10 years ago. Carnival Diablo is 27 years old this year and it's still going strong. We're actually coming up on the 100th anniversary of when your grandfather started his. Next year. Next year. Yeah. yeah. So in, in two, uh, 2020, we have 100 years of Circus Sideshow in my family, which is a big celebration. But you know what? I'll tell you something. Uh, this is my 27th year in uh, Sideshow professionally now, and it means a lot to me, the 27th year, and I'll tell you why. I invented Carnival Diablo when I was 27 which means I have now been doing Circus Sideshow for half of my fucking life. And you didn't join the 27 Club, which is when superstars die at 27. So there's... I a... didn't. Actually, that's when I started. Like right. that, that, 27 is a magical number. A lot of people have actually started their careers. Like they really, you know, they really got going at 27. They finally figured it out. And I knew that Carnival Diablo was going to be a game changer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At 27. At 27. And, and, and it went hot guns from, like, good God, from 1992 right through until the early 21st century. We were on top of our game. Now there are a lot of sideshows out there. Like, you know, things have changed. It's like uh, people have glommed onto it. They all want to be stars really quickly, like I've told you before with this person that wanted to apprentice and all that. It's, everybody just wants their, their 15 minutes now. But the thing is, is they aren't working hard enough for it. They aren't really putting together strong, classy shows that are worth watching. Um, they're putting together these mamby-pamby things that are like, you know, improvised, as it were. And, uh, you know, they're, they're coming out. Uh, word. I hate it. Yeah, it's it, it's it's more than a four letter word. I'm going to beep that out every. That's what I'm. I'm going to beep out the word improvise in this. I'm going to let all the yeah every. Yeah, do it. Yeah. Uh, that being said, um, you know, we now live in a world where uh, you know every block has a circus sideshow. I know for a fact that we are the only circus sideshow under a big top in Canada still, because. Mm-hmm. Two years ago, I decided to live the big dream, and that was to actually put some money down on a big ragtop. A ragtop is a real big circus tent. And, uh, you know, get out there and do it the real way we used to in the past. Instead of playing in the clubs and, and in theaters like we've been doing for the past, you know, 27 years. Well, you put together, I mean, you, you put together like a real, I mean, it's it's a canvas tent, wooden poles, hemp That's rope. Right. I mean, it's it's like pulled out of it's, 1919. Oh. It's amazing. And uh, we start up again in three weeks. Our season begins, uh, like, basically June 1st. And so I'm very excited. That is that is incredible. I mean, what you do is, is you know, I, we, we really just scratch the surface here because, I mean, you have – let me go down the list here because you've got – let me see if I can go down your, the list here of stuff that you actually do. Because you have, obviously, you have Carnival Diablo. Um, you've got the Paranormal. Do you still do the Paranormal show? Paranormal show is a staple in my life. I do it in the fall and winter. So it's like the Paranormal show makes me my money when uh, the uh, summer season is over and I can't wow. work the big top. Yeah. And then you have, um, obviously, you've got a web series, Dr. Rigamorto, which I imagine you do when you can't do anything else. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Rigamorto is this wonderful uh, homage to, like, you know, uh, the Munsters, the Adams Family, Hilarious House of Frightenstein, and all the other uh, campy uh, TV shows from the 1950s and 60s yeah. based on horror. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry for interrupting. No, no, it's great. I'm going to put it, I'll put links to it. Um, and you do the, the Carnival Diablo's World of Wonders, which we're going to talk about in our, uh, in a second. Um, and also you, you do, um, Diablo Manor, which you actually bring people to your house and, you know, I don't want to spoil Tonight. anything here. You've said this on other interviews, but that you let people at the end of the night, um, eat moose out of a, you know, a monkey's head, like in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's right. <laughs> the uh, Temple of Doom, I'll, I'm sorry. The, yeah. The, the, the people that come out 
to our uh, evenings here at the Diablo Manor. The dessert is a uh, lovely chocolate mousse in the brain pan of a monkey's head. And each one has their own individual monkey that they can name and take pictures of so they can bring it home with them. It's lovely. Uh, well, they get to take the pan home with them? No, 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 oh, just, oh, pictures. Oh, just a picture. But oh, okay, a lot okay. of people name them and put them on their Instagram and on their Facebook and all that. It's it's become kind of a fad. That's really you know? funny. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it's a, it's a great show. But so you you're cool with having people tromp around your house with all these things. You know what? Here's the thing. Um, just charge enough that past, only the nice people come. <laughs> over the past twenty seven years of doing sideshow, it's like my house has always been pretty remarkable when it comes to or uh, old artifacts from the circus and sideshow world. And my friends always said to me, Scott, you know your house is like a museum. You should let people in to see it. And I'm like, I don't want people traipsing through my fucking house. But then I thought about it for a second, and this this only this is only something that I really had to do some hard thinking on over this past year. I said. What if I didn't let them come through my house, but instead I turned it into a complete tour of my house where I was hosting the tour, and then I put on a beautiful Victorian meal that I actually cooked myself because I'm a chef, and then performed a 75-minute show of all of my favorite things from my career. Then it would be a three-and-a-half-hour evening that would be so much fun. I'd have a good time and I wouldn't feel so bad having these strangers in my house. And you know what? I've been doing it now for seven months and it is going hot guns. We've got a full house coming tonight. It's every Saturday and uh, like I'm only five hours away from opening my doors again to the public. And I'm very excited. It's uh, it's going to be a great evening, and um, they, they get to experience something they've never experienced before. They, I when I'm on stage, I'm usually like at least eight to twelve feet away from my audience. When they come into my home. I'm performing three feet from them, which means that it's very personal, it's very unplugged, and it's really sinister because the show ends with a full-blown seance with poltergeist activity. Wow. I yeah. like that. That's great. Yeah. So you're like, you're like a man of the people. You don't like to keep the rabble at arm's length. You like to, to be amongst them, is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. I'm an introvert. Like in, in, in all reality, um, I, 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 uh, I'm very private and I'm an introvert, but I'm willing to give people – uh, give them a world that I live in because I know it's so different from theirs that it's worth bringing them in for that three hours to me. Like I, I will, I will let go of my anxiety of being in crowds and all that and give them that three hours because this is personal. This is, they're, they're, they're getting some raw information from me when they come into my home. It's my house. Fuck, man. It's not like they're going into a theater or something. Right. And, um, I, it's neat because I'm cooking for them too. And so it's like, uh, I'm breaking bread with my audience. And so I, I'm the shaman and this is my tribe and I'm performing for my tribe. And these people are paying good money to see it. Like it's a hundred dollars a person. And we limit it to 10 people, so it's an elite evening of only 10 lucky souls right. that get to come to the show. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, I, next time I'm up in Canada, if I ever you know, make it up that way and don't get stopped at the border, I'm, I'm definitely coming up there. It's on my list because it sounds amazing. It is uh, a riot. Well, so I want to talk about some of the artifacts. Um, so we're gonna, you're going to stick around for a little bonus episode. We're going to talk about all the cool stuff your uh, grandpa left you. If that's, are yes. you okay with that? Totally cool. All right. Um, well, Nikolai Diablo, a.k.a. Professor Crookshanks, Dr. Rigamorto, you know him as Scott McClellan. Um, this is an incredible thing. How can people find you if they want to see any one of your shows? Uh, where are you? Social media, websites, what do you got? Yeah, I've, I've, I've got uh, Instagram, just go Diablo Manor, and you'll, you'll find me on Instagram. Uh, for Carnival Diablo, it's simple, carnivaldiablo.com. The Paranormal Show is theparanormalshow.net. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, that's all you need to know. Oh, and of course, there's diablomanor.com. So if you're ever interested, we've got people uh, two weeks ago, uh, by the way, we had uh, a husband and wife fly in from New Zealand wow. to experience the Diablo Manor. So this is becoming a destination point. Well, I guess I can't complain too much just being just a little south. I'm not. <laughs> it's cool. It's like I've got people writing me right now from Australia, uh-huh. from England, and from Italy that all want to come down just to experience this. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And so you don't do Twitter, Facebook? You don't do any of that? Just Instagram? I do Twitter, but I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not, uh, not active. Not, not, not that active. I don't have time. 
Yeah, um, it takes a lot. Facebook, I'm very easy to find. Uh, you know, you you look up uh, th- there. There's there's a site right now that says Carnival Diablo as a fan page. That was my original site. Somebody has hacked it, and they're sitting on it. So um, the if if you if you type in Carnival Diablo and like that site, it's been dead for five years. So ultimately, the best site to go to is Carnival Diablo, the strangest show unearthed on Facebook. That is the real fan base site, and uh, it's mine. I like you know I had to take it back, but I couldn't get uh, Facebook to give me back my original Carnival Diablo site because uh, there was just no way of getting that person to give it up. They weren't. Getting- yeah, just nuts. Um, but you can find uh, the Diablo Manor also on Facebook. And I'm always, always bringing up-to-date pictures and uh, stories and everything on those two sites. That's great. I will have links to all this stuff on the page, including um, – including, I actually found a, a, a great video of the cup and balls trick by Penn & Teller as they show you how to do it. It's great. Um, and I'm going to put up Dr. Rigamordo. I won't put up any videos of Lurch, I promise, although I feel like um, I probably should just so people know who that is. I will uh, kill you. <laughs> Fair enough. Threatened, taken. I'll uh, back off. Um, <laughs> Canadian threat. Yeah, Canadian threat. Yeah. I know you guys I are really serious. I will kill you with so, love. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'll say sorry. Exactly. After you're dead. I'm sorry. Um, well, Scott, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for being on the program today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Of course. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn co-production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to FascinatingNouns.com to check out more about this show, all the past guests, all the past topics. It's incredible stuff. Uh, top of the page, you'll see links to the, to the episodes and the guests organized both ways. Bottom of the page, social media. If you're into that kind of thing, we got YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, all that bottom of the Fascinating Nouns page. And if you love this show, please subscribe, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, tune in, like and share, tell people about the show if you enjoyed it. And of course, leave a review on iTunes. Um, if you really want to get on my good side, be, get, do that, man. It would be great karma going forward, and and I would love you forever, I promise. Uh, if you like this show, you're going to love the ne- the other podcast that I do called Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, Gear-Based Technologies, FGGBT.com. That's FGGBT.com, where I take pop culture technology, a group of academic scientists, experts, rocket scientists, biologists, physicists, tell you how to make this thing in real life. We've done the T-1000, Acme's Black Holes. Uh, we've done the Passive Dream Machine from... From Inception and, of course, Luke Cage's skin. If you want bulletproof skin, we got the answer. FGGBT.com. And if you like those two shows, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to check it out. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.